Hi, this is Jessica Castle, Associate Professor at Oregon Health and Science University and Associate Editor of Diabetes Technology and Therapeutics Journal. I would like to welcome you today to our podcast titled CGM Coding and Reimbursement. We have two expert faculty joining us, Patty Telgener, who is the VP of Reimbursement of Emerson Consultants, and Claudia Graham, who is the former Senior VP of Global Access of Dexcom. We are going to discuss coding for professional CGM, coding for personal CGM, and how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted CGM coding. This podcast is sponsored by Dexcom. Patty and Claudia, thanks so much for joining us today. So today we're going to be talking about codes for CGM, and I wanted to first start off with professional CGM. Can you, Patty, describe for us a little bit about codes 95250 and 95251? Okay, so for professional CGM, for the technical component, that would be CPT code 95250. That would be billed when the provider is hooking the patient up to the professional CGM device. One caveat, that descriptor does require that there be a minimum of 72 hours of data. And Patty, this is Claudia. When you just mentioned that the provider bills for it when they hook them up, but don't they actually bill for it when the patient returns to the office? Correct. So that for clarification, yes. So they would, as they remove the sensor and download the data, data, that would actually be the time that they would submit the claim. But my point, I just want to make sure that the 95250 is all inclusive of inserting the sensor, educating the patient, collecting a minimum of 72 hours of data, as well as removing the sensor and downloading. So thank you for that clarification, Claudia. Yeah, great. Perfect. And then for 95251, what does that encompass? So 95251 is for the interpretation of the CGM data. Now, this is a non-face-to-face code, so the patient does not need to be in the office in order to bill for this. Perfect. So it could be done either in the office at a visit or outside of an office visit, correct? Correct, Jessica. Okay, perfect. And then how frequently can these codes be billed? So there are two ways to kind of confirm frequency. One is the code descriptor. And in the case of CPT code 95251, which is the interpretation, that CPT descriptor does limit that to once per month. I also encourage providers to understand their payers' policies. There may be a payer policy that says that I will limit that to once a quarter. Typically, what I see is most payers following the CPT descriptor descriptor, allowing that to be billed once per month. Okay, great. Thanks for clarifying that. I've always found this to be a little bit confusing. So who exactly can perform and bill these codes, 95250 and 95251? And uh, Jessica, I always say those are two separate questions. People like to put them into one, (laughs) but they are two different questions. So as far as CPT code 95250, again, that is kind of the technical component of the professional CGM. As far as performing the service, it can be an RN, it could be a medical assistant if they have been trained It's in within their scope of practice, it could be an RD or a physician or advanced practitioner. Again, talking about who can perform professional CGM. But the important point is the billing 
would be done under the MPI of either the physician, advanced practitioner, or it could be also a hospital because an RN or a medical assistant is not recognized as a provider and they cannot bill for 95250. Perfect. And then who can perform and bill 95251? That one's a little straighter answer because it, they are the same. So in the case of billing for the interpretation, it must be performed and billed by either a physician or an advanced practitioner. And in Medicare terminology, they use the term qualified healthcare professional, QHP. And so sometimes you'll see that explained in some of the coding manuals. And, and maybe, Patty, you want to comment a little bit about QHP and what that means? Correct. And the QHP is kind of another definition of another descriptor of an advanced practitioner. And those would be your nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and in some cases, CNS, which is a clinical nurse specialist. Excellent. Okay. So now we've talked a little bit about, you know, what components are required to build these two codes and who can perform and build these two codes. Now let's talk a little bit about coverage for professional CGM. So uh, which diagnoses are covered typically for professional CGM? So from a diagnosis for professional CGM, it will vary by payer. So I always encourage providers to be aware of their CGM policies for their payers. Typically, I would say broadly payers cover for type one, almost universally. Many payers will also cover for type two. Some may require being on MDI or a pump, but again, it will vary by payer, but overall you can kind of consider it to be universally covered for type one and then really understand the coverage data criteria for any type two. And do you see that this is commonly covered for people with prediabetes? So good question, Jessica. So For the most part, and with reimbursement, it's hard to give any universal answer, but I would say overall, payers have not quite evolved to covering it for prediabetes. It's Patty, let me ask you, uh, in addition to that, um, you know, Medicare does cover this in every state. Uh, Where do they stand with type twos using professional CGM? So there are not specific LCDs, which is local coverage decisions, stating coverage for Medicare on professional CGM. Most commercials have written positive coverage, so I always encourage providers to be aware of their commercial. As far as Medicare, Claudia, I would say they have not specifically excluded prediabetes. I would urge caution to really make sure that if they would do CGM on a Medicare prediabetes, that they really can justify that from a medical necessity. Again, what about Medicare type two? Medicare type two, I am seeing covered. We have not seen providers get denied. And I just want to make sure people understand when we talk about the LCD versus Medicare coverage in each state. So each state is covering for Medicare, but there is no specific LCD. That doesn't mean that it, there is no coverage. Absolutely. Medicare does not need to write policies for every technology or every service. CGM is covered by Medicare. And if a provider or staff member wanted to see what the typical Medicare physician's fee schedule would be, where could they find that information? 
Absolutely, Jessica. That is actually very easy to find. You can get it in one of two places. You can go to Medicare uh, CMS.gov, which is kind of the national Medicare site. Once you're there, it's pretty easy to follow. You choose Medicare. They have a specific dropdown for what is titled Physician Fee Schedule Lookup. You can go in there. You can pick your state, your locality, put in your CPT codes, very quickly find out the specific Medicare fee schedule. If someone is more comfortable with their local Medicare contractor website, you can also go on to your local Medicare contractor site and they have all their fee schedules on there as well. All of the Medicare fee schedules are in the public domain. And, and let me just add a little more color to this. On average, a national average is somewhere around $153 for last year. And it does get updated, that fee schedule, every year, and again, depending upon geographic location, and it varies, I would say, probably within about $10 of 150 You know, Patty, I think that's probably about it over the past decade we've seen that variation. And then if it's done at a hospital outpatient center, it's typically a little bit less, and it's used under a different APC code. In this instance, it would be 5012. And the cost there, excuse me, the, the reimbursement amount there is around $113. So it's a little bit less. And what about Medicaid? Um, what does that typically look like? And how would clinicians find out if, they're, they're, if professional CGM is covered in their state? Okay, Medicaid can be um, somewhat of a difficult payer to understand. First of all, each state has their own Medicaid program and provides their own coverage criteria and each state establishes their own fee schedules. So for a provider to understand if Medicaid covers professional CGM, I recommend that they go out to their state Medicaid program. They have what they call a policy manual that you can search and see if continuous glucose monitoring is listed in that policy manual. However, just as you heard Claudia state earlier, Medicare does not per se have a policy for professional CGM, yet it is covered. Same thing with Medicaid. Just because it's not listed in a policy manual does not mean it's not covered. So I always encourage providers to do a second step and go out and check the Medicaid fee schedule. Most Medicaid programs are paying for professional CGM and have those codes loaded on their fee schedule. From a payment level, Claudia covered the Medicare payment level. I will tell you Medicaid typically is a little less than what you see from Medicare. Claudia, anything that you would add there? I, I think you summarized it well. Medicaid is tricky and it's, it's not a straightforward um, understanding. So I think if you do have a large Medicaid population in your practice, you know, try to understand it ahead of time so that you don't have to look it up with every patient that comes in. And I think, um, Claudia, that's a great point. And one question I have as a clinician, say I'm going into the room with a patient and I'm reviewing the professional CGM and I want to build the code at the time of the visit. And I haven't gone and looked on the, the you know, Medicare website or Medicaid website. Is there a problem with just you know, billing that code and see what comes back? For Medicare, you're going to be okay if it's, if it's a type one, you will get covered. Medicaid, 
I think, um, Patty, you can comment on that. So for uh, Medicaid, in that example, you there would be no um, coding concerns with billing for professional CGM. The difference with Medicaid is typically you cannot balance bill that patient. So if you provide that service to a Medicaid patient, 95250 is billed, and if it is denied under the Medicaid programs, typically that provider does not have a lot of recourse to appeal or to collect from the patient. That would be the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. And what about with private insurance in that scenario? And would you typically need to get a prior authorization prior to, to billing for private insurance? For professional CGM, CPT code 95250, I can say I have not seen that code listed as requiring prior authorization. So for commercial payers, I have not seen a prior auth required for professional CGM. You know, now let me just mention here though, back, you know, 10 years ago, things were a lot different and CGM has really become the standard of care now. So if you tried doing some of this billing a, a decade ago, you may have had more obstacles than you do today. So I think people need to keep that in mind. And, and I do remember, Patty, I remember prior authorizations way back when the codes first came out, but I, uh, today I don't know of them. I don't either. And I, and I, you know, talking to a new provider, I will tell them if you have a payer that, you know, requires a prior off on all services, then I would suggest you may try to call them and see if it is required for CGM, but that would be more from a payer across the board requiring prior off. It is not specific to payers saying professional CGM requires prior off. Okay, great. So we've talked a lot about professional CGM. So now I would like to move to personal CGM, so code 95249. Can you tell us a little bit about the requirements for that? So 95249 is the CPT code for, as providers would train a patient on personal CGM. The difference between 50 and 49 is 49 is the patient is expected that they would already have the device, whereas 95250, the patient, the physician incurred the expense of the sensor. So just to make sure, 95249 would be for personal CGM. The caveat of having at least 72 hours of sensor data is also included in the descriptor for 95249. From a coding specific, there are some additional points to consider. Kind of CPT codes have, uh, have limited, or they say that 95249 may only be reported once during the time that that patient owns a given data receiver. So in that case, if you are starting a patient on Dexcom, you would be able to bill 95249. If there's just a software update, that may not require additional training. You would not bill the 95249 again. Again, the wording is reported only once during the time that a patient owns that receiver. Now, Patty, let me ask, if a patient was trained on a Dexcom, let's say a G6, and they switched over to a Medtronic device, 
by the way the descriptor is written, the physician or the office would be able to bill again because it's a new receiver, a new sort of data recorder. Is that correct? You are correct. Also kind of another caveat again, and this is really kind of unraveling the layers of coding, but they also state that, um, that they do require that that patient brings the data receiver to the office upon billing the 95249. So that kind of says that that provider has the data, they're reviewing it with the patient and they complete that service. Yeah, and I think now, that's been a challenge for some because they think they're gonna train the patient and send them home. But, but technically, when, when we listen to what Patty just said, it means the patient has to come back and you know, show, show the data recording to the, to the office, to the, to the caregiver. We may cover some more under the COVID and the public health emergency. I think that is one component that has been a little more flexible under COVID and the public health emergency. But I think it is important for um, our listeners to know that you know, once we get back to normal life, that those are some of the specific criteria for that code. I think, Patty, that's a very pertinent topic right now. Maybe you could expand a little bit. We've talked a lot about it, the requirements for professional and personal CGM prior to the pandemic. Maybe you could comment how those criteria have changed under this public emergency. So under the public health emergency, a couple key things have changed. Um, CMS, as well as commercial payers, have significantly expanded services allowed to be performed via telehealth. Telehealth is like an office visit that you are doing via video or phone, that patient in the home, but you are billing CPT codes that you would normally have provided that service in the office. There are remote monitoring codes that do not require kind of that video or phone connection with the patient. What has changed specific to CGM is Medicare has kind of waived, and I say temporarily waived, the face-to-face -face requirement for coverage of CGM supplies. They've also made a very broad statement that CMS has says that they will not enforce the clinical indications for coverage for certain policies. So I do applaud CMS and commercial payers really trying to expand and allow payment actually at parity levels for services provided in the home. I remind providers that they need to document, document if they are providing services, either remote monitoring, telehealth, because when things come back to normal, I think there could be some review of those charts to ensure medically that they were all medically necessary. You know, I think, I think what you just brought up is really key. Um, and for our listeners to know, there's a myriad of, of codes under remote monitoring. But remember, remote monitoring does not involve the patient sometimes. It's just downloads, it's review of data. Whereas the telemedicine codes actually involve that interaction with the patient done remotely. And I guess my question would be, you know, I've read that providers are optimistic and CMS is somewhat optimistic that these new waivers or these new telemedicine codes may stay in effect. Um, and I, I suppose it's probably gonna depend upon the audits that may be done as a result of this period. But 
that would be a real change, I think, for our whole healthcare system if that were to happen. And especially for people with diabetes, it would be really, I think it would be really a lot better for them. I absolutely agree, Claudia. And if there's one positive of COVID-19, yeah. it has really moved our healthcare system ahead very rapidly that probably under normal times would not have happened. And right. so I do agree, CMS and commercial payers I think we'll continue with expanding these, but I do just kind of remind people, just make sure that you're documenting and all of that um, to make sure that you can, should there be audits, have the yes. documentation. Now I wanted to go back to the point of remote monitoring. So for example, if I get a message from a patient saying, for example, it's a person living with type one diabetes who's experiencing hypoglycemia and I pull up you know, their CGM data and I review it and then I respond back to them um, and to indicate that they should make adjustments in their insulin doses. Would that qualify for rem a remote monitoring code? And if so, what would be the requirements in terms of how much time I would have had to spend to be able to bill for that? Great question, Jessica. So, and remote monitoring could be a podcast in and of itself. But to answer kind of the question for your scenario is, I would say yes, under certain caveats. So with the remote monitoring codes, there's kind of two big questions. Who is providing that service and how much time is involved? In your scenario, you said you were doing it. So that is the physician. That code that could be billed would be 99091 but you would need to have 30 minutes of time over a 30 day period before you would bill it. So you may not bill under your specific example, but if you have contact with that patient living with diabetes once a week, if you accumulated up to 30 minutes, you would be able to bill. There is also some codes that would be for clinical staff. So if the clinical staff is reviewing that time, there's codes 99457 and 99458, which has a time limit of 20 minutes, but it would compensate for clinical staff time. And then one other question I had is regarding patient co-pays. Do patients typically have co-pays for these codes that we've discussed? And do we need as healthcare providers or staff to relay that information to patients? So yes, co-pays are not waived under telehealth or remote monitoring. So the patient would have a copay. Another requirement is that the provider makes sure the patient knows and the patient, in this case, verbally agrees to receiving remote monitoring because that patient will get a bill. They may have a copay depending on their plan. And some patients will say, I didn't even see a doctor this month. Why do I have a copay? So that is part of getting confirmation and notifying that patient that they are agreeing to, to remote monitoring. In the case of telemedicine or telehealth, where that physician is either on the phone or video talking to the patient, patient still would have a copay, but at least then that patient would expect and they know they've had an encounter with the provider and that they would be, then be getting the bill. Perfect. Thanks for outlining that for us. So Claudia and Patty, I think that's it for our time today. I really want to thank you both for this great information. Before we go, are there any common scenarios or other thoughts you'd like to leave our audience with on this topic? 
Why don't we start with you, Patty, and then Claudia? So I just would leave it with that I am just really excited about all of the remote monitoring telehealth opportunities that have come up and that will continue to be expanded. So as we get new diabetes apps or more services that don't require face-to-face, I think providers are going to have more opportunity to be paid for non-face-to-face services. Claudia, I'll let you kind of maybe just walk through maybe a couple of specific scenarios. I want to mention one thing, which is um, Patty and I have been involved in the coding aspects of CGM for, gosh, Patty, I don't know, 15 years in the creation of these CPT codes. And one thing that I want to make sure our, our listeners are hearing is that the 95250, the 95251 have been around for many years. Uh, 95250 was the first code created. And so if somebody billed, let's say an office billed for this 10 years ago and, and hit obstacles, it's not the same today. And then 95249, the last one for personal use CGM really is a relatively new code in, in the world of codes. It's probably been around, I don't know, maybe five years. So the reason I'm mentioning this is I would often hear early on in the days of CGM clinicians say, oh, it's such a hassle, I don't get reimbursed, or I don't get reimbursed enough. But things have changed today. So don't be quick to say, oh, it's not worth my time, because there are codes, and there is pretty much universal coverage for these codes, as long as these criteria are met, which are laid out. So I I just want people to know that it's, you know, that old saying, it's not your mother's Oldsmobile, it's not your grandparents' Oldsmobile. So it's, things have changed and the payments are there and, and take advantage of them. You know, an evolving scenario that um, more and more of these hybrid closed loop systems are coming out and will be coming out in the future. So that involves both the CGM start and an insulin pump start. So we know that there are codes 95249 for the personal CGM aspect start, but there really aren't specific codes for insulin pump initiation. So in a scenario like this, let's say patient starts the system, they, they use the 95249 to get started. The patient can send back their CGM data and their pump downloads to the clinician for review and the titration. For the CGM interpretation, it's going to be 95251, which is the interpretation code. But when the, the healthcare professional is evaluating the insulin dosing, they could probably use 99091 or 99457. And so that will allow um, the appropriate codes as long as the 30-day time frame is met for that titration. I mean, Patty, do you want to talk about any more of that? No, Claudia, I think that you gave that is a great example of how you kind of build for the CGM component, but then there are also those remote monitoring codes that we've talked about that can capture some of that insulin dosing or glucose Mm -hmm. data sharing remotely. And as long as the 30-day kind of titration period is met, they're fine. Correct. And the time as well. So the 30-day, but also in the case of 99091, they'd need to meet 30 minutes of time or 20 minutes in the case of 99457. Perfect. Well, thank you. I think that's a common scenario that comes up for clinicians. So it's very nice to know how that is handled. Well, I want to thank you, Patty and Claudia, both for your time today. And thank you to our listeners for joining in. Thank you. Thank you.